This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about those amazing kids in Parkland, Florida, and their campaign against guns. We'll talk about them with Gary Young, The Nation columnist. He knows a lot about kids killed by guns. That's the subject of his award-winning book, Another Day in the Death of America. Also, we'll talk about a foreign policy for the left with Michael Walzer, the longtime editor of Dissent Magazine, something he's been arguing about for a long time. But first, Chris Hayes. Of course, he's the Emmy Award-winning host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He's also editor-at-large of The Nation and author of the New York Times bestseller, A Colony in a Nation, which is out now in paperback with the new afterword. Chris Hayes, welcome back. It's great to be on. Ta-Nehisi Coates called your book essential and groundbreaking, partly because in the book you ask the question, what do we talk about when we talk about crime? What's the answer? Well, (laughs) a lot of times what we're talking about when we talk about crime is preserving a certain social order. And it's been remarkable to watch the last year unfold with a president who probably more than any president since Nixon, at least rhetorically, sort of invoked law and order, you know, the sort of vision of chaos, lawlessness and criminality racking the nation and him coming to restore law and order, the obsession with the criminality of immigrants, the obsession with the the dangerousness of Muslims, the obsession with gang violence in, you know, African-American parts of major U.S. cities. And so the idea was like, I, I am the law and order candidate and I will come and restore law and order. And then we have watched as person after person in his inner circle has pleaded guilty to felonies in which there's just a sort of orgy of incredible lawlessness uh, around the president of the United States. And you have to wonder, like, well, was he really talking about the law? And the answer is no. I mean, this is obviously and very clearly someone whose concern for legality or lawfulness is trivial to non-existent. But one of the theses of the book is that when we talk about law and order, we're not really talking about law. We're talking about order and preserving a specific kind of social order. And what the president makes, I think, manifest in in almost a useful way, because he's so brazen about it, is that crime to him is something that other people do. So when Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, lies to investigators, which is a crime, he goes and says to James Comey, according to James Comey, like, can you let him go? 
Can you see your way to letting him go? When his staff secretary is accused by two ex-wives of being abusive, including one with a photo of him, her, him putting a vase into her face and giving her a black eye, he tweets about how there's no due process anymore. Suddenly, this is the guy who said the Central Park Five should be executed, and then when they were subsequently exonerated, refused to acknowledge that, all of a sudden is, is obsessed with due process. The guy who led chance of lock her up is obsessed with due process. And the point is that like, this is not hypocrisy. It's actually an integrated worldview in which the law and criminality is wholly defined by who is committing what offenses and which side of allegiance they're on. There was the interesting case of Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, a Republican, not a criminal, who criticized Trump, split with Trump. And Trump replied in a tweet that Senator Jeff Flake was, quote, weak on crime. Is Jeff Flake really weak on crime? Well, it's so funny. He will use that invocation. He'll, anyone he doesn't like, he calls weak on crime. Um, so when Ralph Northam was running at, at Gillespie in Virginia, again, Ralph Northam was weak on crime. Jeff Flake, when he didn't like Jeff Flake, he's weak on crime and weak on borders, right? And, and again, it's a sort of useful shorthand. He's not really saying anything about the crime voting record of any of these people, right? What he's saying is not one of us won't protect our own, isn't a person who will sort of erect barriers to protect uh, people like you, white people who are scared of others uh, from their incursions and invasions and depredations. And so, you know, Donald Trump couldn't could not tell you a single crime vote that Jeff Flake has ever taken. <laughs> I guarantee it. Right. <laughs> but that's right. But but manifestly, that's not what it's about. And it's actually useful for him to just kind of, you know, make the subtext text as he has a tendency to do, say the quiet part loud, that, you know, weak on crime does not mean weak on crime. So mostly the crime, in quotes, the crime issue has been used to mobilize white fear, very old tactic, goes back, you show in the book, long before Trump, you've mentioned Nixon. But Trump has done one new thing with the crime issue. He says immigrants are criminals. That that seems like a, a break from the past, isn't it? The version that he has implemented is, I think, relatively new. And in an interesting way, one of the ways in which he's distinct from Nixon or sort of represents a kind of evolution of Nixonian rhetoric is Nixon's rhetoric on law and order really was about... African-Americans in major cities. And Trump uses that language too, but there's two other groups that even get more attention. The, the, the first is immigrants and, and, and criminal immigrants, MS-13, and the other are, are, are Muslims, right, who are sort of born suspect, born guilty, even if they're refugee children fleeing a horrifying war in Syria. So the, 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 the basic framework of white fear and sort of defense against the dark other that was so useful to Nixon and then subsequent other politicians across the country, Reagan as well, George H.W. Bush with Willie Horton, of course, that same rhetoric the same kind of structure is then used to apply to immigrants and and you know one billion Muslims around the world and almost kind of cut and paste in terms of the way that it that it's employed. So we've talked about how being quote strong on crime has been a Republican tactic going back at least to Nixon to mobilize white fear, but I think we left out Bill Clinton. And not just Bill Clinton. I mean, Democratic politicians up and down the ballot and across the country. I mean, one of the, the amazing things about the sort of particularly the crime years of the 1990s, and this is documented in, in with incredible sort of texture and care by James Former Jr. in his book, Locking Up Our Own, which is a phenomenal book. 
black mayors of major cities who sound as Nixonian as anyone when talking about the drug thugs and the gun thugs and how we need more firepower and we need to lock them all up and throw away the key. Um, and they, you know, drug dealers acting like, uh, you know, animals, all this sort of very dehumanizing rhetoric coming from democratic black politicians in major metropolises from Atlanta to Washington, DC to Baltimore to Cleveland. This kind of politics spreads far and wide across both both parties, and and is often, particularly in the 1990s, in response to real changes in conditions, which is really extremely high levels of violence and homicide and uh, and victimization. So it's not just this some sort of creation of political rhetoric. You have, between 1966 and 1992, a huge crime spike in the country in which rates are doubling and then tripling. And then from 1992 to about 2014-15, you have a kind of symmetrical decline to the point where in 1991 or two, when I was starting to go down to Manhattan to high school, New York City had 2,300 murders. Last year, it had a little more than 300. Wow. You have a remarkable change. Uh, and this this is true across lots of major cities and, and all different categories of crime. Let me interrupt here. Yeah. Is that because we got tough on crime? You know, it's it's a great question because the answer to it is sort of maddeningly complex and undetermined. Like, there is no single consensus definitive view of why crime went down so much. Part of it looks like it was a cohort effect with the baby boomers, um, that there were a lot of young men in their peak crime committing age, <laughs> uh, it, you know, starting in 1966. Part of it is the structure of illegal drugs and the war on drugs and particularly drug markets. Part of it was incarceration, right? So there's there's yeah. part of the decline on crime, particularly in the beginning part, and, and I, I, I've been convinced of this, is the, the, the rate of incarceration per crime committed remains steady at the first tar- part of mass incarceration as the amount of people in jail is sort of going up along with the amount of crime. And at a certain point, the two completely detach from each other. And as crime is coming down, we keep putting more and more and more and more and more people in prison. At some part in the beginning of the process of putting more people in prison, there's some degree to which it probably does have an effect on crime. And yeah. I mean, the obvious thought experiment here is if you put every male in America aged, say, 18 to 30 in prison, you would almost certainly see a reduction in crime, <laughs> particularly violent crime. That's the <laughs> cohort that, that commits uh, the vast majority of it. That's a, that's a fairly universal truth across very different societies that look very different. But of course, that would be you know unjustifiable. But there's neighborhoods in which, like, essentially, an experiment like that was run, right? I yeah. mean, it's just unbelievable percentages of young men of color who are who are being put into the the criminal justice system. Let's get back to Trump for a minute. You open the new afterword to your book, "A Colony in a Nation," with a statement that may shock uh, a lot of our listeners. You say there's a silver lining to the Trump presidency. What is it? To me, the silver lining is just that he doesn't care enough to go through the motions of of pretending in any plausible way that what he's saying, you know, Mike Pence is an example. Let me say it this way. Mike Pence is an example of a sort of traditional politician who has this kind of like faux earnestness to mask the real meaning of what the sort of nature of his appeals are. Donald Trump sort of dispenses with that. He's constantly saying the quiet part loud. I mean, my favorite example of this is at one point he's asked about um, a congressman from Pennsylvania who's been appointed to be the drug czar, who himself has uh, very questionable dealings with opioid manufacturers and his role essentially deregulating 
uh, opioids in, in, in the country prior to the big sort of opioid epidemic. And so the president gets a question. And the normal thing to say, the thing that Mike Pence would say, would be like, well, this guy's a great, you know, he's an outstanding congressman. He cares about this issue. He knows it really well. And that's why he appointed him. And Trump says, well, he was an early supporter. I think he was one of my first supporters in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it's like, that is a perfect example where like, that's often the subtext for why a political appointee happens. But most politicians play along enough. There is this kind of way in which Trump is constantly enunciating the subtext. The first thing he says when he comes on the escalator, Mexico sending rapists. You know, Mexico sending rapists is the kind of thing that is the kind of dog whistle message of a lot of political rhetoric in the mainstream about Mexico. But he just comes out and says, yeah, they're sending rapists. Uh, this judge can't judge me because of his heritage. Again, a kind of dog whistle idea that I think is probably relatively widely shared among people with racist views, uh, but he just comes out and says it, and he's constantly doing that. You know, he tells a bunch of cops that you should you should literally rough up and abuse suspects that you are arresting. That um, has to get a rebuke from, like, the, you know, local police department, which itself has to, like, sort of say, well, no, obviously you shouldn't do that. So all of that, I think, has been useful because I think it has really revealed what so much of the kind of base driving force of a certain kind of politics really is. It's harder and harder to pretend anymore. Uh, for, for, for people to pretend that, for instance, the immigration politics and the, and the anti-immigration movement and the immigration restriction movement isn't fundamentally animated by some sort of bigoted animus. <laughs> and the president has, has been useful in illustrating that because, he, you know, he says these are shithole countries. Why are we why are you sending us people from shithole Africa? It seems like this racist animus is now so pervasive in our political system, but it did not win the Virginia gubernatorial race for the Republicans, and it didn't win that Alabama Senate race for the Republicans. So what should we conclude from that? Well, I think there's, you know, there's limitations to it. And I think um, they are attempting to sort of extract the maximal amount of value over a relatively small portion of the American electorate. And I say relatively small, just maybe not a majority of the American electorate or a majority of white voters. Uh, for sure, and they will win a majority of white voters, and you know they'll they, on in 2018 they'll win a majority of white voters across the country, across all races, all uh, you know campaigns. They'll they'll almost certainly win a majority of white voters in 2020 in the presidential. But country as a whole, you know, it's about 40 percent of voters total who who this appeal is really really effective with. One of the theses of the book is this kind of politics and the politics of white fear, they're really effective with people and, and white people in particular and white people who consider themselves liberals who live in big cities and who hate Donald Trump but don't necessarily want to see their local schools rezoned um, or don't necessarily want to like the fact that there are a bunch of teenagers hanging out on the block all the time and might call the cops to, to, to clean that up. You know, the politics of that are, are pr profoundly powerful across a lot of different ideologies and in a lot of different circumstances. But they're not the only politics there, right? And there's, you know, there's stuff on the other side fundamentally. And this sort of pure atavistic appeal to the most kind of tribalist and bigoted impulses only goes so far. You, you got to give people something other than that. And I, I think in some ways we're 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 seeing the limitation of that politics this year. We'll see how it plays out in the in the midterms. One more thing: the title of your book, "A Colony in a Nation." Sounds very left-wing. Is that from Malcolm X or is it Stokely Carmichael? 
hilariously, it is Richard Nixon uh, who, who talked about African-Americans in his 1968 convention acceptance speech wanting the same thing as white Americans and not wanting to be a, quote, colony in a nation. I think that phrase was probably informed by the intellectual zeitgeist of black nationalism at the time and the notion of sort of internal colonialism, which was a very developed line of, of intellectual inquiry and critique among black nationalists and, and black ap- academics for years. But no, it was it was a Nixon speech. And, and ironically, as I say in the book, it's, it's that he, as much as anyone, was responsible for precipitating exactly that state of affairs. So for the president and his political movement, crime is not a problem to be solved. It is a weapon to be wielded. That's what Chris Hayes argues in his book, A Colony in a Nation. It's out now in paperback with a new afterword. Chris, it's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. We're still thinking about those amazing kids in Parkland, Florida, and their political courage in taking on the gun lobby. Maybe they'll succeed where the rest of us have failed so often. For comment, we turn to Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow of The Nation Institute and editor-at-large for The Guardian. He knows a lot about kids killed by guns. His book, Another Day in the Death of America, A Chronicle of Ten Short Lives, was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Prize for Combining Literary Excellence and Social Concern. We reach him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jim. Well, it's so easy to feel discouraged or, or hopeless about making progress on gun control in America, and then these Parkland kids come along. Seventeen of their classmates were killed at school, and then they spoke out, and suddenly things seemed different. One lesson, I guess, is you never know. You never know where hope might come from. We've been through so many mass shootings and school shootings with nothing happening afterwards. Why do you think this one has been different? The way that these things unfold, it can be very quick. If you think of gay marriage, marriage equality, the speed with which that unraveled, the opposition to it and the speed with which it happened isn't that obvious. And that when it comes to gun control, the NRA, they win the votes in the legislature, but they've never won the argument that most Americans overwhelmingly are in favor of more background checks and a plurality have always supported more gun control or generally supported more gun control. So there's always a uh, there's always a chance, and that what's happened, I think, here with the kids in Parkland is 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 partly that the ground has been prepared by a broad resistance to Trump. That this moment lands in a bigger moment where it could be that their parents have been demonstrating, or that. Uh, they've certainly seen demonstrations. These kids, some 16, 17, 18, some of them would have been 14 or 15 when Trump was elected. And what they've seen is mass demonstrations since then. And prior to that, they'd have seen Black Lives Matter and Occupy, uh, the Occupy movement as they were coming into their teens. So they have 
grown into a period of protest. And here comes this thing. They just think, well, we are not going to stand for that. And they don't have that culture of what I call learned hopelessness that older people do about guns. That, well, it doesn't matter what you do, nothing will happen. Well, Emma Gonzalez, she was 12 when Sandy Hook happened. So she's not thinking, well, nothing can ever happen. She's thinking, well, this is an obscenity. A lot of us remember Sandy Hook as nothing happened, but you've argued recently that's not quite right. Well, that's right. Something did happen. What didn't happen was that legislation didn't change. And actually, the facts on the ground, I'm pretty sure, was that in Sandy Hook, there weren't less guns but more guns. They ended up with armed guards in Sandy Hook. So people think, well, you know, nothing happened. But I was in Fort Myers, Florida, in the summer of 2012, I'd gone to see Obama speak for a feature I was doing, but overnight, I flew there the night before because it was a morning rally. Overnight, a young man goes into a cinema in Aurora, Colorado, and uh, shoots it up and kills a bunch of people. And so Obama then takes to the podium hours later, and he does what American presidents have done for uh, pretty much a generation. Uh, He's talks about thoughts and prayers, who knows what's in men's hearts, you know, this is Obama, and um, now is not the time for politics, and so on and so forth. Then he's elected, and then comes Sandy Hook, and he says something different. He says, we cannot go on like this. Something has to change. And he starts talking politics, and he starts arguing that the NRA cannot run the show, that there are reasonable background checks, um, there are reasonable bans on assault weapons, and and so on and so forth. And no legislation comes down. But the fact that he made the case makes a difference. It makes a difference. It shifts the conversation. And so when Hillary Clinton stands, she stands on a much more robust gun control platform than Obama did and actually takes it to the NRA. I remember seeing um, a tweet at Kane saying, this guy's got an F from the NRA. And Kane responds, this is, that's the proudest F I've ever got. Wow. You know, I've never been more proud of an F or something. Now, that was, that was not going to happen, you know, even four years earlier. And so, so something did happen. Yeah. And, my point there isn't that in, that enough happened or that something happened that substantially reversed the likelihood of this happening again, but that you can't fatten your pig on market day. Hmm. You, there has to be a process by which you get to a consensus that this can't happen. So when Obama does that, we shouldn't be surprised if first time out of the block, in the absence of a mass movement and the absence of any real mainstream challenge to the NRA within the polity, we shouldn't be surprised if it's our first time. You know, these Parkland kids who have been so thrilling, this is not the first time that 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds have 
sparked a, a movement. In fact, you might even say there's a tradition of young people leading protests. These kids stand in a tradition both within the U.S. and beyond. If we think in America of particularly Birmingham, Alabama, but the civil rights movement in general, but Birmingham, Alabama, where with King in prison and adults fearful for their livelihoods, the SCLC decide to mobilize teenagers to fill the jails. Let me just inject here, we're talking here about 1963. That's right, uh, the kind of um, spring of 1963. And these young kids transformed the year, actually, that the the scenes of these young kids being uh, housed down and setting dogs on them, being arrested, uh, beamed around the world, they become a complete disgrace for America. And um, it's Birmingham that makes the march on Washington possible and desirable. Uh, prior to that, nobody wanted to march on Washington apart from Bayard Rustin. King didn't. The NAACP didn't. Kennedy didn't want them to. Kennedy still didn't want them to afterwards. But um, it was irresistible afterwards. And so when they go to um, Kennedy's office and he says, you know, we want legislation and not a big show on the streets, A. Philip Randolph said, the Negroes are already in the streets, Mr. President, and I doubt if we call them that they would come back. That is sparked by young people. Then if we think of the <laughs> Vietnam protests, of course, in America, uh, Occupy Wall Street, these aren't, they're never exclusively young people, but there is, a, there is a tradition and beyond America, in 68, in Paris, in Brazil, the Prague Spring, the Arab Spring, if you think of these uh, uprisings, young people have often been the spark. And that's one of the hopes I have for Parkland, that the, the gun control movement, as it stood, was too white, too suburban, and was clearly not getting the job done. And these kids, in just a month, have been able to kind of uh, make inroads that others haven't. Now, like I said, and this is, was true for Obama, and it's true now, you can't fatten the king on, king on market day. They're not going to get it all done in one go. The notion that America will be the same, I think, is, um, is, is unlikely. Right now, a lot of the focus has been on a campaign for a federal assault weapons ban. You say the fight has to be much bigger than that, that the issues are much bigger than that. What, what do you have in mind? Well, the individual things that one might fight for, like an assault weapons ban or background checks. I think they're, you know, they're fine as far as they go, but they don't go far enough. And as long as they are, as long as the issue is framed in that narrow way, then it's likely to be defeated. But America's gun problem is part of a broader gun culture that is rooted in American culture. So if you have a foreign policy that is about conquering and domination and war, if you, if you have a culture that privileges masculinity, that trumpets rugged individualism over collectivism, the individual over the state, if you have a culture that does all those things, then the gun, in a range of ways, speaks to all of those things. The individual, 
defending themselves against against other individuals, not relying on the state. The, you know, most of these mass shootings, nearly all of them, are young men. And so it speaks to this issue of how you are a man. Just look at the president at the moment. Just look at Me Too and all the things that that has exposed. That the gun goes deeper. And therefore, arguments about background checks and assault weapons bans and so on, even when they're right, are less powerful than the myths, even when those myths are flawed. But you go to the NRA convention and you ask people, that why, why should we, why, why have guns, I would ask. And they say, you know, they paint this picture, you know, are you married? Do you have children? Imagine somebody broke into your house and wanted to rape your wife, and wanted to kill your kids, wanted to steal everything that you worked for. What do you do? Wave a bat at them, wait and call the cops. You stand and you fight, and so on. And they, and they paint this picture, which is rooted in masculinity, rugged individualism, small state, individual, homestead, all of that American stuff. And it doesn't matter that it's not true. It doesn't matter that more than half of the people who are killed by guns in America kill themselves. Or that after that, the people you're most likely to be shot by are people that you know. But you're more likely to be killed if you have a gun in your house. And if you don't, uh, you're more likely to be shot dead. That, you know, because you're more likely to be killed by someone you know, well, they should say, are you married? Well, watch out for your wife because she will kill you. (laughs) You know, that would be the more logical... Or, as is more common, watch out for your husband, that in these moments of domestic abuse become more deadly and more lethal because guns are involved. So these arguments for assault weapons bans or background checks, or these, these individual things, while they are fine, what is necessary is a broader reconstruction of the American narrative that understands America differently and understands its future differently and understands its past differently and creates a different story for America. And that's the other reason why I'm a bit more hopeful, because Trump, because he's so grotesque in his politics, because he's been so obscene, he has forced a broader reckoning, I think, in America with what have we become. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, that the answers to that have been widely shared or has created a new consensus, but it's forced a reckoning. And this moment lands in that moment where the gun can be understood as part of a broader range of American pathologies. Gary Young, his column appears at thenation.com, and his book on kids killed by guns is Another Day in the Death of America. Thanks, Gary. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about a foreign policy for the left. That happens to be the title of a new book by Michael Walzer. He was the editor of Dissent magazine for more than three decades. He's written many books, the best known of which is Just and Unjust Wars. He's also written for The New Republic and The New York Review, and recently for The Nation. He's also an old teacher of mine and an old friend. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, John, for having me. Well, you are a democratic socialist and 
Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist. I've been trying to remember his foreign policy positions during the campaign. Well, he didn't have any. Because he's Jewish, he had to give one speech on Israel-Palestine, which was a good speech. But otherwise, he did not talk about foreign policy. And, and that is, in fact, one of the one of the things that led me to um, rewrite a group of dissent essays and make a book out of them about a left foreign policy. A lot of leftists prefer to talk about domestic policy. In fact, most people who are leftists are leftists because because we've been right again and again about domestic politics, about labor rights and civil rights and racial equality and gender equality and welfare and health care and public education. But on foreign policy, not so much. We've either had nothing to say or too little to say, or we've gotten things wrong. And that's what I'm trying to, uh, those, that's what I'm trying to address. Bernie Sanders did have some foreign policy advisors, didn't he? <laughs> yes. When he was asked to list his advisors, he included me and a group of four. We had had one 20-minute conversation two years before about Syria, in which, indeed, we had agreed that we didn't know what to do. But when he listed me as a foreign policy advisor, I realized he did not have any foreign policy advisors, and he really didn't have um, a foreign policy. So what advice would you have for Bernie Sanders and the rest of us democratic socialists? What are the basic principles of a foreign policy for the left? Well, we need to be internationalists, and that means we need to be in touch with um, comrades abroad, and that means we need to think hard about uh, what Ignacio Saloni calls the choice of comrades, who are our comrades abroad. And we also need to attend to the well-being in the world of our fellow citizens. Can I give an extended example? Please. The national security state that we live in is a right-wing creation. The Patriot Act, massive surveillance, huge military budgets, the militarization of the police. Well, you know, it's a, this is a right-wing creation. And we've been against all of it, rightly against all of it. But we don't have an alternative. It's as if we are not interested in the security of our fellow citizens. Social security, we're very good. (laughs) National security, not so much. And one of the reasons for that has been a persistent refusal to recognize enemies abroad and to think about the possible need sometimes to use force abroad. In the 1930s, uh, French socialists and British laborites consistently voted against rearmament in the face of the Nazis. Uh, Norman Thomas, our much-loved socialist leader, wrote a book, he published a book in 1939 called Keep America Out of War, arguing for a massive reduction of the military budget in 1939. During much of the Cold War, many American leftists insisted that there was no, that the only reason for the Cold War was American aggression, and, um, 
and there was no security threat from uh, the Soviet Union. In the early years of Islamist radicalism after 9-11, there were many leftists insisting that before, before Boko Haram began kidnapping schoolgirls and ISIS began beheading infidels, there were many leftists arguing that uh, this was just another version of anti-imperialism and, and refusing to recognize um, a threat that needed to be addressed. So we, we have no alternative to the national security state that the right has created. And that's because we're not looking around in the world and seeing what needs to be what needs to be seen. Let's look at some of the hard cases. Islamism, ISIS. Should the United States take military action against ISIS in, you know, three or four or five countries around the world? I'm sure if you asked our comrades in Syria and elsewhere, they would say, yes, please, you know, bomb them, right. uh, destroy them. But in Syria, at least, the alternative to ISIS seems like Assad. Is this a case where you're in favor of doing what our Syrian comrades are at, would ask us to do? Well, let's let's begin with the Iraq case and okay. get to Syria, which is harder. In Iraq, I was against the 2003 invasion, but I did support American intervention against ISIS. For example, I strongly supported the rescue of the Yazidi people who were threatened, quite literally threatened, with massacre and enslavement. And in fact, that was a rescue carried out by Kurds on the ground in the U.S. Air Force, and most of my friends on the left thought it was a good idea to do it, although to a man and to a woman, they would all have voted against the military budgets that made it possible, which is one of my arguments with uh, the, there's this reflex of voting against the military budget when we should be, what we should be doing is looking at the military budget and saying no here and yes here. This is what we want America to be able to do and this is what we don't want America to be able to do. That would be a serious engagement and they, that's been rare on the left. In Syria at the beginning, the people we called the good guys, the democratic left, the Demo they called themselves secular Democrats. I suppose they did want American help. And I think um, Obama was told by American operatives on the ground that these were indeed the good guys, but there weren't a lot of them. And they couldn't hold on to sophisticated weapons if we supplied them. And so Obama decided, probably rightly, not to go in. But the left, my book is a foreign policy for the left. The left wasn't getting reports from operatives in the field. We should have been talking to those secular Democrats, and we, sh we should have been asking them, what can we do to help you? Not, not the U.S. government. What can we do? Should we be picketing Syrian embassies? Should we be organizing demonstrations? Should we be publicizing the names of people who get arrested in the hopes that that will help them survive? Maybe we should be organizing an international brigade. There was talk about an international brigade at the beginning of the Syrian thing. ISIS is an international brigade. Yeah. 
<laughs> Islam Islamists can recruit in many countries. Um, the left right now can't, except I suppose that the the volunteers for um, Amnesty International or or Doctors Without Borders or um, Human Rights Watch, their staff. Those are our brigadiers. Yeah, but they are um, they're unarmed. Anyway, there were things we could do. And that that is enormously important. And and for the record, what what's your position on Israel and Palestine? Briefly, I'm still faithful to the the two states. I believe Palestinians have a right to self determination in a state of their own, and I believe the Jews have a right to self determination in a state of their own. And it would be a very good thing if there were um, Palestinians living in Israel, as there are, and Jews living in Palestine, as there might be, um, with full and equal rights. So that's, it sounds utopian these days. Uh, Ten years ago, it really looked like a possibility. Um, but I think... I I think it's it is very important to keep plugging away um for what seems to me to be the only fully justified solution. One last thing, you wrote most of this book before Trump was elected. Does Trump being president change your argument? I don't think so. I mean, I I th- I still think we need to be engaged with um, comrades abroad. I, 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 can't get, I can't figure out what Trump's foreign policy is. It moves from a version of isolationism, America first, to um, kind of gestural um, violence, like the, um, the rocketing of targets in Syria which was a, 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 a one-day event that had, was part of no policy and had no follow-through and uh, achieved nothing. And then the, the, the bombastic talk about Korea, which, which is very scary, but it doesn't seem to be um, a foreign policy. So, yes, I, I, I think we need to be steady in our own in our own commitments and in our own um, engagements. Michael Walzer, he wrote about a new left internationalism for the nation. You can read it at thenation.com. And his new book is A Foreign Policy for the Left. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the political economy of revenue sports, why athletes deserve a piece of the income pie, and how the FBI investigation into college basketball highlights the system's hypocrisy. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. 
Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.